Good morning. It's on. This is from Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, and then verse 8 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And starting at verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lisa. So, as we end our time in the wilderness, it's worth noticing, if you haven't already, that the showdown that's taking place here is one that goes way, way back. It goes back to our very beginnings. As our parents, Adam and Eve, were tempted with the very same things and failed, as we know. And as a result, the disease of sin came into the world. That the, the very things of appetite, approval, and what we're looking at today were the very same challenges made by the devil. This in many ways is the reliving of a drama as the devil confronts Jesus in the wilderness. A tragedy of where, as I told you, the connecting thread through all of this is trust, where humanity chose not to trust God. And our loss was Satan's gain as evil was empowered in that moment and has been ever since. And we have been paying the piper for, again, our lack of trust in God. It has limited us. It's hindered us in many, many ways. And this is a, a story that goes back to our beginning, but it's also a story in the wilderness that's repeated throughout our existence as humanity. God, you'll recall, set a people aside, created them, redeemed them, freed them to be a light unto the nations, Israel. And it was not by coincidence that we're back in the wilderness because Israel in her time in the wilderness, having been empowered, having been set free to be a light unto the nations for the authority and power of God to come through them, to be the way to reach all the world, was again tested with these three things in terms of her faithfulness and her obedience. And like our first parents, she failed. And this drama, this tragedy re repeats itself throughout our lives apart from what takes place with Jesus Christ. Our time in the desert becomes our wandering in the wilderness as we struggle, as we struggle with believing who we are, our covenant identity as we've celebrated it in baptism, as we've struggled with allowing the authority and power of the kingdom to come through us, to believe that we actually can be responsible to do the things that God has called us to do, to be the people that God has called us to be. And today, as we confront the third and final temptation that Jesus faces in the wilderness, in many ways, it's our greatest. It's the greatest source of resistance that we have to our identity and to that authority and power that is ours in Christ. To enter into it, I want you to notice how the devil in the, the, this third and final attempt in a last-ditch ditch effort basically goes all in. I mean, he doesn't quote scripture anymore. He, he's no longer being aloof or subtle. He just comes right out with a really raw and provocative display of authority. He once again takes Jesus to a very, very high place. And then in that this high place, as he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, as he displays to him all the empires of the age, all the principalities and powers, the devil just gets right to the point and says, bow to me. Bow to me. And all of this will be yours. Bow to me and I won't fight you anymore. 
Bow to me and I won't fight you anymore. I won't resist you. Bow to me and I'll help you get what you want. You can have it all without any resistance, without any struggle. Beloved, what's going on here in this temptation is the temptation of ambition. The devil is appealing to Jesus' ambition. Now, I know on one level we could just read this very, very superficially, and, and there's validity in this, that the devil is basically saying, bow down to me, and Jesus says, no way I'm bowing down to you. You're the devil. That's kind of obvious. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, almost in a sense, it's kind of self-evident, but there's a subtlety, there's more going on here than just simply, obviously, we don't bow down to evil, though that's a, a given. Yes, Amen. The devil here is appealing to Jesus' ambition, and Jesus was human. And ambition is part of being human. Ambition is a strong desire or drive to do something certain. And ambition, sometimes we struggle if ambition is something of God. Ambition is God-given. God gives us this drive. God gives us this, this push towards things. The key is, is while our ambition itself is God-given, we need to make sure that our ambitions, what we specifically focus on, where we are drawn towards, is God-driven. So our ambition is God-given, but our ambitions themselves have to be God-driven. And I want you to see on the surface that what the devil is offering here isn't as simple as we might think. Some people see this in their way of dealing with this, and it would be a really short sermon, is to say, well, the devil, it's, the devil is promising something. He's offering something that's not his. The devil is showing all the kingdoms of the world, the empires of the age, principalities and powers, and claiming that they're his, that he can give them to Jesus, but the reality is they're not his. But something I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't argue with the devil about this point. He doesn't contest, he doesn't come back, and he has no problem doing it other places and saying, that's not true. Jesus doesn't contest that Satan has control over these things or has some measure of authority. Now, this might strike us as a little bit bizarre or might strike us as odd, but consider, while we would say that all that we see, all that there is, all creation was created by God and it is under God's sovereignty, what we know, we know it very well in our lives that we see and we know it through looking at history, that that doesn't mean that everything in all creation submits itself to God. All the, 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 even the greatest kingdoms that we can point to in the world do not always operate according to the will and purposes of God. And so if you stop and think about it, what Satan is offering at a certain level makes a lot of sense. If you are the son of God, if you came to save the world, and what's Jesus' ambition? What's the ambition? What drives him? What motivates him? What has God put in his heart? He shares it with us repeatedly throughout his ministry. His, his mission is to save the world. His mission is to reconcile creation with its creator. His mission is to redeem what is broken in creation. And so Satan appeals to Jesus' ambition. If you are the son of God, if you've come to save the world, it's all yours. It's all yours. I'll give it to you. I'll give you what you need. I'll give you what you came for. I'll let you conquer without battle. I'll let you reign unopposed. And if Jesus wants to see the kingdom of God take hold in the world, why not give the devil his due? Why not give the devil his due? Why not do it the way it's done by nations, by kings and governors, and in doing that, beat the principalities and powers at their own game? I want us to sit here. I want us to really sit in this. I want you to think, look at all the good that would have come 
If Jesus were to have succeeded, if Jesus were to grab the reins of world government, if Jesus would have taken the offer, made the deal, think of how things would have changed. In a flash, in a moment, it would be Caesar, not God, who would be recognized worldwide as king. In a flash, in that moment, it would be the Roman Empire, no longer seen as the center of the universe, but the kingdom of God that would become the undisputed force in the world. Think, we're 2,000 years out, plus... That in one moment, if Jesus had taken the deal, that all of the hungry would have been able to be, have been fed. That all of the hurting would have been helped. That the gospel message would have been shared with all the world. And isn't that what Jesus came for? Isn't that in the midst of our own tension what we struggle with? Is 2,000 years later, we believe the gospel. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And yet the poor are still among us. There are many who are still hungry. There are many who do not know and have not heard the gospel. But if Jesus had taken the deal, we wouldn't be here right now. So why? Why doesn't Jesus take the deal? Why, when Satan, who John's gospel, he's called the ruler of this world, makes Jesus an offer that he can't refuse, why doesn't he take it? Why not save the world without a fight? Why not save the world without a struggle? Why not establish the reign of God without the suffering of the cross? Why doesn't Jesus take advantage of this once-in-a-lifetime offer? And the reason why I ask this question, the reason why I ask us to sit here, is because you'd take the deal, wouldn't you? I'd take it. Don't we take it all the time? Isn't this how we deal and trade every moment of our lives? I mean, I know we're in church. I know... You know, that when we're in church, we, we suddenly ignore the way that we think and live all the other times. And so we, you know, we, 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 you know, we, we pay attention to what we're singing and the prayers. But I'm asking you, in the practicality of our lives, if we were to have a real conversation, a real conversation meaning coming out of how we live, deep down, don't we believe? Deep down, don't we live? Don't we profess that it's really the powerful in the world who make things happen? Isn't that for many of us why we protest we can't make a difference? Isn't that a reason why we don't do more? Because we say we just don't have the power to do so. We're just not in a position to do so. Don't we teach our children? Weren't we taught and don't we pass on that, the, the, that we can have all the best intentions? We can be ambitious for really good things, even great causes for God in the world. But we tell ourselves, we've been taught, we pass it on to our children. If you really want to get somewhere, if you really want to do some good, you've got to get in a position of influence. You have to have power. If we were to create a list of all the things that we'd like to see God do through us, through this church, our predisposition, our habitual thing would be to say, who are the movers and shakers in our community? Because we know it's the movers and shakers that can make things happen. It's the people who have power. It's the people who have influence. And as we've learned, and some of us have embraced this lesson, some of us rebel against it, some of us are neutral, how do you get power? How do you reach a position of influence? We were taught it. We're passing it on to our children. The way that you get power, the way that you get influence is you got to play the game. Got to play the game. And you all know the rules of the game. 
It's rough out there. It's a competition. It's a war. You got to learn how to be competitive. You got to learn how to jockey for position. You got to learn how to do what it takes. You got to learn how to climb your way to the top by hook or by crook. And in the midst of that journey, we all know, we've all accepted it, that if you want to get somewhere, if you want to have influence, if you want to have power, we understand that to get a little, you got to give a little. You got to give a little sometimes to do even more. You got, you know, for us, we, we profess that that, we, we, we celebrate that. We call that the art of the compromise. We celebrate that idea of giving a little to get a lot and call that a diplomatic solution. For us, that's how it works. Beloved, we exist in a world that's so goal-oriented. I mean, we are taught, people will say to you, what are your goals? Do you have goals? You gotta have goals. What are your goals? And if you have goals, what's your plan to get where your goals are? And we're very meticulous about our plan to get where our goals are. And we can get so fixated on what our goals are, our ambitions. So fixated on that, so taken up with it, that actually we can be, without even knowing it, so fixated on those goals and making those plans happen that it doesn't take much for us to rationalize shortcuts and cutting corners for the sake of the greater good. We are so goal-driven that sometimes we're so fixated on the goal that we're willing, and how many of you have ever said this, to, to acknowledge that, you know what? The end justifies the means. You ever said that? Yeah, I, I, I know what we're giving up here. I know, what, yeah, I know what we're, what's happening here, but look at what we're going to get. Look at where we're going to be. We tell each other in the midst of the conflict over power, the tension, sometimes the end justifies the means. And what we're basically saying, what we basically is internalized, is it doesn't matter how you get to your goal as long as you get there. Isn't it always easier to ask forgiveness than it is permission? Don't you attract more flies with honey than with vinegar? We all know. Look, this is the way the world works. And it's in that moment, those moments when we embrace that, those moments when we live it out, where don't kid yourself, the devil says, yes, yes, my children, you've learned well. Because something you need to notice here in the wilderness, it's, it's quite shocking. The devil doesn't negate or debate the ends. The devil is content to leave the matter of the ends with Jesus, the goal and purpose, the grand work of salvation contested. Save the world, Jesus, save the world. Save the world. I'll make it happen for you. I can make it easy for you. The devil doesn't debate the ends. His temptation is devoted exclusively to the ways, to the means best suited to accomplish the end which Jesus is the way. And the devil makes one heck of an offer. No fight. No struggle. No suffering. All you got to do is just give me a little do. Just give me a bow. Give me a little acknowledgement. Beloved, in our own lives, we may wrestle with, maybe we don't, does the end justify the means? But here it is in the wilderness, the ultimate question. Does the end justify the means even if the end is the salvation of the world? If the end is the salvation of the world, do the, are the, do the means, are, are they okay by any means necessary? Jesus says, no. 
Jesus says no. We preach, we profess, we pray, we sing that Jesus came to save the world. But here in the wilderness, what we see is that the plan of salvation, Jesus came to save the world, but the plan of salvation includes saving the world from the way of the world. Saving the world from the way of the world. In other words, Jesus refuses to build the kingdom with the devil's tools. Jesus refuses to build the kingdom with the devil's tools. The way of the kingdom, according to Christ, and we see it here in the wilderness, the way of the kingdom, and we'll see it later on in his ministry, is not the way of politics, and it's not the way of prestige. And we really need to hear this, church, a little sidebar here, because I'm just expressing a little frustration in the Christian community. For the love of God, and I mean that, please stop looking to our politicians to save us. Please stop. Please stop putting them together. Please stop putting the church and the government together. Our founding fathers got it right, and we all will will get all fired up about it if you can't pray in school. But there's a reason why church and state need to be separated. And it needs to be separated because we can't do our job. We can't be who we are if we're compliant with the government. And yet for many of us, whatever political party, we are willing to compromise for the sake of expediency. We are willing to compromise for the sake of power and influence. Our politicians will not save us. Our government is not our Messiah. The church needs to stand apart from the government. And what I'm saying is, is stop associating Christians with being conservative or liberals. Stop. Stop associating Christians with being Democrats or Republicans. Christ has no political party. This is probably one of the most rampant examples in our nation of where we are making a devil's bargain every single time. Instead of all the energy and time that we are throwing in behind politicians and political causes, why don't we stand up and be the church? Why don't we witness to the God we follow? And instead, we're being divided because of our political differences. The kingdom of God transcends politics. It transcends politics. It's got to engage politics, but it transcends it. We have more in common in Christ than we have a part in our political views. The kingdom of God is not about politics, and the kingdom of God is not about prestige. We, we, we talked about approval last week. We need to stop looking to the celebrities in our Christian culture to save us too. Stop lifting up pastors, authors, speakers, whoever they are, and we do it all the time. We are not creating disciples of Kay Arthur or Beth Moore or Mark Driscoll or Chris Twightman. We are disciples of Christ. Think about how often we talk about our people in the Christian community as though they're rock stars. Rather than looking in the mirror and understanding that God never intended for rock stars in the kingdom. He never intended the kingdom to be about prestige. Think about the disciples in the book of Acts that we never hear about, yet God still worked through. We lift up Peter and Paul, but do we doubt that God worked through the other disciples? The kingdom of God is not about prestige. It's not about celebrity. The way of the kingdom, in other words, beloved, and there's lots of other ways I could talk about this, is Jesus gives it to us. The way of the kingdom is not about self-interest. It's not about self-seeking. It's not about that kind of power. The way that Jesus will put it later on with his disciples, when his disciples are still where we are. Man, you're going to save the world. We need some power. What are we going to do to get the people on our side? What are we going to do to make things happen? And Jesus says finally in one moment to the disciples, he says to them and to us, look, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But it's not that way with you. We don't play the game as kingdom people. Jesus goes on to teach us 
from what he models for us in the wilderness later, that the way of the kingdom is a new way. It's a new law. Salvation comes not by way of the love of power. Salvation in the kingdom comes by way of the power of love. It's not the love of power, it's the power of love. And here's the difference from all other powers. The difference between all other power and the power of love is the power of love cannot be coerced. The power of love cannot be manipulated. The power of love cannot be forced. The power of love cannot be taken. Oh, we try. But when we coerce it, when we manipulate it, when we take it, when we force it, it's not love, it's just power. Love's power is different from all other power because love's power comes from giving and receiving. Love's power is different because love's power involves the risk of suffering. (laughs) You know this. The minute that you get married, the minute that you have a child, you have risked yourself. You have risked tremendous heartbreak. The power of love involves the risk of suffering in order to experience the reward of sharing. You want to avoid that risk? Don't have kids, but then you'll never know the joy of sharing life with them. You don't want to have that risk? Don't get married, but then you'll never have the risk of sharing life together. Love, the power of love involves the risk of suffering, death even, for the reward of sharing. And the love of power, unlike other power, comes through submission. The love of power is about taking. The power of love is about yielding. The power of love is about submitting, giving everything up, surrendering it all. And here's how it works with the power of love. You surrender it all, and when you surrender it all, the power of love conquers everything. When you surrender it all, the power of love conquers everything. All other power, you've got to take it in order to conquer power of love, you got to give it up, and then you're conquered by it. This is how we were built. This isn't actually a new law, Jesus will say, or a new way. It's the way it's always been, but we messed it up. Our Father, God our Father created us out of the power of love. God our Father did all those things. God our Father gave us life. God our Father risked suffering. God our Father risked suffering by giving us the ability to reject him, giving us the ability to say no. God, our Father, submitted, surrendered part of himself and giving us that kind of freedom to rebel against him. God, our Father, created us out of love, out of the power of love, and and out of that love that we receive from the Father, we we are not only called, but able to love each other. And that's why Jesus says when he's asked, how does this world work? He sums up the law. He says, this is how it all works. This is it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You want to understand power? That's it. Love God. And in loving God, that means you receive that love that he first gives to you. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then love your neighbor. And he's not just saying it as a command, go love your neighbor. He's saying that when you experience the love of God, the power of God's love, you have the ability to love your neighbor. You can love your neighbor. You can't help but love your neighbor. What I'm hoping you're seeing, in contrast to the devil's temptation, is that when it comes to the power of love, the means and the ends are inseparable. When it comes to the power of love, you can't separate the ends from the means. (laughs) Imagine I came to you and I said, you know, I want to have the power of love. And I understand that the power of love is about about a couple things. So guess what? I'm going to have a child. So I have a child. So now I have the power of love. I'm gonna, I heard marriage, I'm going to get married and I'm going to have the power of love. I'm going to get some friends so now I can have the power of love. And imagine that when I said that to you, I literally did those things and walked away from them. I had children, 
got married, got some friends, and now said, no, I got love. I got the power of love in my life. We all know that's not true, right? We all know that if I treat each of those things as achievements, you know, I step back and I go, man, I've got it all now. I've got the power of love because I've got kids, I've got a wife, and I've got friends. We know that if I treat those things as just achievements, things that I check off, things on my resume, that in fact, the, the, the ironic thing is love is absent. I mean, we know lots of people, sad to say, out there who have children, but don't necessarily mean that, that they have love. We know lots of people out there who are married, but that doesn't mean they're experiencing love. We have lots of people out there who have friends, but that doesn't mean they're experiencing love. Love, you can't separate the ends from the means. In other words, how... The how in the power of love matters as much as where we end up. When it comes to the power of love, it's not just about the destination, where we end up. It's about the relationship. It's about how we get there. And we know this common sense in our lives, but this is what I've been trying months to, to continue to put before us, church. Yet many of us, this is how we treat our relationship, the power of love that we have in Christ. I've accepted Jesus into my heart, so therefore I have the love of God in my life. But if Jesus being in your heart is just some achievement, you prayed the prayer, you've been covered by the grace of God, you don't have the love of God in your life. Because the love of God in your life is not some transaction, it's a relationship. And if you're not experiencing the relationship, then you're not feeling the love. Why would we resist? <laughs> Why would we resist something so powerful? Power, more powerful than anything else. Why would anyone resist the power of love? What we see in this temptation is what the real source of the resistance is. It's not ambition. Ambition can be God-given. The thing about ambition, God-given, but needs to be God-driven. The greatest source of resistance to the power and authority, the power of love in our lives as revealed here in this temptation is we want to be in control. We want to be in control. When our ambitions go crazy is when our ambitions are about us being in control. That's what the devil tempts Jesus with. Jesus, I'm offering you control. I'm offering you the ability to control how this goes down. And all of us want control. Why do we take shortcuts? Why do we cut corners? Why do we say the end justifies the means? Because deep, deep down, what we want, what we believe we need to have is control. I told you the key thread through all of these temptations is trusting God. And when we look for shortcuts, when we look for loopholes, when we make bargains that are not with God, but are with anything else other than God, we are saying, we don't trust you, God. I don't trust the power of your love. I don't trust that relationship. I need to take control. I need to take control. <laughs> we, 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 you and I, if I were to ask you in your day-to-day -day lives how you view life, most of you would probably say that you, you view life as a competition. And competition's great. But if you are in Christ, life isn't a competition. But we act like life's a competition. We're like, you know what? I got to look out for you and you and I'm working against you and I got I to compete. I got to keep up. But if you're in Christ, life isn't an, a competition. Life's only a competition when you're competing for power. But when you're in Christ and you're dependent, you live according to the power of love, there is no competition because no one can defeat God. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can, can defeat the love of God in Jesus Christ. We can say that, but living that is not being competitive anymore. 
We're competitive as people, we're competitive as churches, and yet we're all supposedly a part of the same thing, which is the power of God, the love of God being expressed to the world. Now, for some of us to bring this down, I know that, you know, we go, gosh, I don't feel like I'm looking for power in that way. I don't feel like I'm that controlling. Ask yourself in your day-to-day life this past week, just so we can reflect on this, how many of us were tempted this week to make things happen by our own power? How many of us this week tried to take control? Control of what was happening around us. I come back to it because it's where I'm at. It's where I'm living. We all want our children to behave, right? If we're parents, we all want our children to behave. And for the best reasons, we want our children to behave because we want them to learn how to do the right thing, right? We want our children to behave so they learn how to do the right thing. And that's the best of intentions. But how many of us are being so focused on wanting our children to do the right thing that's the end, are willing to bargain with our children in order to get them to do the right thing? How many of us are willing to threaten our children in order to get them to do the right thing? Anyone ever stop and think that the majority of our parenting, and this is kind of a thought that came to me the other day and it kind of hit me in the gut. Do you ever stop and think that how most of us were parented and how we're parenting, our primary motivation for parenting is motivation by guilt and shame. We guilt and shame our kids to behave. Boy, I'm really disappointed in you. Boy, you really let me down. Boy, our primary motivation in parenting is guilt and shame. And again, that's our trying to control our kids. We think if we guilt and shame them, we can get them to do the right things. What's interesting about that is the power of love that God pours upon us as our father, God does not motivate us by guilt and shame. That's the very opposite of what the gospel is about. And yet, we who are people of the gospel parent our children in a way that's contrary to the gospel. Does that not suggest our control. How many of us have people in our lives that maybe you're having an ongoing discussion about a decision that has to be made or a plan and you are so fixated on everyone who you're talking with to understand the right way to deal with this plan, the right way to go. And you're and the best of intentions, you just know it's right. But you're so willing to get people to understand and to do it the right way that you're willing to flatter their ego. That you're willing to push their buttons or you're willing to manipulate them passively, aggressively. How many of us are well-practiced in passive-aggressive tactics? And passive-aggressive is beautiful because it says, I'm not in control, but I'm not in control, and that's how I'm controlling you. How many of us have people that are close to us, close to us, people that we love, that we're very, very concerned that they are not having the right answers for their life and we know the right answer for their life. We have people close to us, we want them to know the right answer. Maybe the right answer is even Jesus. Maybe they don't even know the right answer of Jesus Christ. Best of intentions. And we're so concerned that they have the right answers for their life that we are willing to argue or debate them into submission. How many times this past week have we tried been tempted to make things happen by our own power. Beloved, when we try to make things happen by our own power, that is where our ambition is selfish. That is where our ambition is self-absorbed. That is where our ambition is not God-given and it's not God-driven. The greatest resistance to the authority and power of the kingdom that God seeks to unleash in us is our need to be in control. And what's tragic about that from the very beginning still to today is that our need to be in control is trumped by the idea that control is an illusion. None of us are in control. And deep down, each one of us, if we really honestly admitted it, we know we're not in control, that ticks us off and that makes us try the harder to be in control. 
We know we're not in control, but that makes us try harder to be in control. We don't have control. We don't have ultimate control. All you have to do is have kids and you realize you don't have control. And that we don't like that. And so we try to grab more control. And do you see what happens? Do you see what your life becomes when you are driven this way? When you're not sold out to the power of love through God, but you're sold out to your own power? Is that you don't have control, but you keep trying to have control. And you spend 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years of your life trying to live by your own power. Trying to live by your own ambition. You spend all of your time all of your energy, all of your resources, trying to fuel the vehicle of your power, limited though it is, instead of enjoying the ride. What's the remedy? How do we allow God to tear down this great source of resistance in our lives? The very first thing is self-obvious, but it's admitting our need. It's saying, and this may be the hardest thing for you to say today, I don't have power. I am not in control. It's admitting that the only thing that we have is whatever God gives to us. God's in control and the only power we have comes from him. It's, this, it's really simple, but it's significant because, beloved, the only way you're going to receive, the only way we receive God's strength to fulfill the ambitions that he's truly put into our heart is to recognize that we can't do it on our own. If we don't recognize our weaknesses, then we can't receive his strength. Jesus puts it quite plainly out there. Later on, again, if, for his disciples who were still trying to have a little bit of power of their own when he says, and he, I mean, again, I love how blunt Jesus is when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say, apart from me, you can do a couple things. Apart from me, you can do maybe one or two things. Apart from me, you can have, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And, and for many of us, we have given our, we, we you know, and we, we we're like, look, I've given you so much. I've yielded so much of my life to you, but I have to hold on to this. I have to hold on to this little piece. This is mine. I have to control it. You don't understand. I, you, I mean, I know you're God and all, but I can do a better job here. I got to hold on to this. And hear Jesus when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Hold on to it. Nothing will come of it. It will be a source of frustration for you. Nothing, nothing, n not something, not anything. Nothing will come of it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. When you try to hold on to control, even in the smallest area of your life, when you try to have the power within yourself to get where you need to, where you believe God's leading us to go, you're always going to run out of gas. It's only in our weakness. Scripture points to this. It's only when we admit our need that we can receive God's strength. And everybody knows this. It's only when you need something that you look for it. So you can come to church and so can I. And we can say, yes, Lord, I need your power. Yes, Lord, I need your authority. Yes, Lord, you're in control. You can say that, but if you're not looking for it, then you don't really believe you need it. Do you hear what I'm saying? You can say it, but if you're not looking for it, you don't really believe you need it. But in our lives, when we believe we need something, what are we spending our time doing? Looking for it. The first step to, again, allow God to remove that resistance is to commit our need and to look outside of ourselves. The second, second way to engage that resistance is we have to become a loser. And that's really hard for us to hear because we live in a world, and this is the way of the world, where the goal in life is to be a winner. We want to win. Winning. Winning is what matters. That's why we're in a competitive world. If you're not winning, you're losing, and no one wants to be a loser. But interestingly enough, the power of love is not about winning. 
The power of love, the power of God, the authority of God is about losing. The disciples, again, so we're not alone in this. The original disciples were struggling. You know, they were struggling. They were debating about who's going to have more authority, who's going to sit on the right, and who's going to sit on the left. Peter hears about the cross and is like, I'm sorry, that doesn't sound powerful at all. That sounds lame. Right? He says, that doesn't sound powerful to me at all. And Jesus stops in that moment and pulls all his disciples aside and he says this, he says, become a loser. He says, look, if anyone want to become my followers, if anyone wants to follow me, they have to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If you want to follow Jesus, if you say you follow Jesus, then you have to become a loser. You have to stop trying to win because that's about your own power. And instead, let the victory be yours in Christ. But the only way the victory can be yours in Christ is if you deny yourself. Jesus goes on, in case we don't hear the subtlety of picking up our cross and following him, he puts it this right between the eyes when he says, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. What will it profit them? What will it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose their soul. What do you have to lose? Everything. Hear that this morning. What do you have to lose? Everything. What are you holding on to this morning? What are you holding on to this morning that you're not willing to lose? You want to know the greatest indication of something that you're holding on to that you're not willing to lose? Well, first, it's the fact that you're holding on to it so tightly. The second is that you are so desperate to hold on to it that if the devil himself showed up here and said, I'll give you what you want, what you've been praying for for years, what you've been, what you've been hoping would happen in your life, what you really, really wanted, which, what, the thing you keep telling God, look, if I could just have this, everything else would fall into place. That thing that you keep holding on to, I'll give it to you. I'll make it happen. All you have to do is let me do it for you. You want to know if you're holding on to something? You're willing to make that deal. What in your life do you, are you holding on to so strongly that you've got to win that you'd be willing to make that bargain with the devil? Maybe, if I may be so bold, you're already making that bargain with the devil. Is it an argument? I'm fascinated as a pastor, and I'm not speaking of anybody in this room, the people I talk to, one of the most common things in our lives is how many of us, some of the things that we hold on to are arguments. Are you holding on to an argument that you've had between with someone else for years? An argument where you've not agreed and you're so fired up and you're so determined to win, you're so sure you're right. I mean, you've gone to blows, you're not as close as you used to be, and if I were to start to engage you about it, you know how you know you're holding on to it because you'd get really fired up and I'm like, look, just let it go. Say you're sorry or say you're wrong and you all of a sudden just get, you know, red in the face and angry and go, I'm not going to say I'm wrong because you don't understand. I'm willing to wait till hell freezes over. Till hell freezes over. Because I'm right and I know it. Are you holding on to an argument because you got to be in control? Are you holding on to a project? You know, we all have these, and these are tough. Maybe it's an experience in your life long ago, and at the time you thought it was God-given. You thought it was a God-given ambition and God-driven, something you thought the Lord was calling you to. And you know what? You can see, looking back now, that it was less of God and more of you. 
that you kind of got this idea from God, this calling from God, and you ran with it, and you took it, and you wanted it so bad, and you poured yourself into it, and you gave, and you gave to it, and it hasn't happened. And you know that it's not of God, but it's so hard for you to let go, because if you let go, then that means you have to admit that you're not in control, that you got it wrong. And you can't, you can't lose the embarrassment to all the people you've told about it. The, all the people for years, oh my gosh, I have to win. And so you just keep trying. You just keep holding on to it. You won't let it go because, you know what? I got to win. And you're vulnerable. Maybe even now, what are you willing to do to win? To stay in control? Is it a relationship? This is one of the harder ones of all. I told you love is a risk. How many of us have people in our lives that we want them to love us more? We want them to love us at all. And we try and we work so hard and maybe we screwed up. Maybe they didn't want anything to do with us to begin with. And we try so hard to get them to love us. We, we think we can control it. We think that we can change it. And we can't. But we have to because if we don't have their love, then that means there's something wrong with us. One thing about ambition that's not of God, our appetites and our approval feed our ambitions. They feed our ambitions. And when our appetites and our approval aren't lined up with God, they make for ungodly ambitions. And in all of those areas, whether it's a plan, whether it's a relationship or an argument, you're holding on to control when God wants to free you to be able to love. Can you imagine loving that person you're arguing with? Can you even entertain that possibility of being close as you once were rather than being so far apart? Can you imagine actually loving yourself rather than judging your entire life on something that you got wrong? Can you imagine appreciating the relationships that you have rather than pining away for the ones that you don't? The ones that you can't control? Some of us are having these conversations. Some of us are holding on to this level of control with people who are dead. And God is saying, let go. What have you got to lose? Everything. Because, beloved, our ambitions have to be for God if our ambition is of God. Our ambitions ultimately have to be about seeking after God, living for him. And if, they're, if, they're, if that's not what our ambitions ultimately are about, then our ambitions are not God-given and they're not God-driven. And you'll know it because if you have a hard time surrendering it, then that means you're controlling it. God's not. Last thing I want to say with you, again, you have to, we have to admit our need. We have to become a loser. How do we acknowledge the fact that we're losers? How do, in a world that tells us we've got to be winners, how do we embrace the fact that we're losers? <laughs> That's what worship's all about. You see, we got it all wrong, and I've said this to you before, and we're still struggling with it. Worship is not about you coming to get what you need. It is, but it, you see, the problem is you don't know what you need. So when you come to worship to get what you need, you're just feeding your control. And so many of us make our decisions about worship based upon our control, but worship is about coming and receiving from God, letting God be in control. I want you to think about that. The next time you say, I don't care what age you are, I can't worship that way. I don't get fed that way. I can't Think about what you're saying. I'm in control. I can't. It's not about you. You come and you yield and you submit and you engage the presence of God. It doesn't, it doesn't care what style it is. I don't care if it keeps you up at night or it you know, bores you to death. God is present. If the word and spirit are there, God is present. Worship is about losing yourself. 
Becoming a loser before God. You know, for most of us, best way I can think of this, this is how we approach worship and this is how we approach our lives. We live our lives like this. We live our lives like we're living on these. Great thing about batteries, think about control. If I have a battery, I can just pop it in and I can go off and do what I want. Until what happens? Battery runs out. And for many of us, this is what we think our relationship with God is all about. We think that when we accepted Jesus into our heart, we just got a better battery. And we got all fired up. We got filled with the power of God. Man, this, is a, this battery lasts longer. It's like the Energizer Bunny kind of battery. And we go off and we accept Christ. And okay, well, we've got the power of God's love in our lives. And we go off and do our own thing. Until all of a sudden, when you know it, we start to feel like we're run down. And so we, oh, time to go to church. Time to get in a Bible study. Time to serve, because that's how I'll charge my battery. God didn't put these in us. Satan put these in us. Satan said, you're in control. Just got to charge your battery. And for many of us, that's what worship is about. Worship is about charging our battery. For some of us, we've gotten closer, we've wrestled with them, we've come to realize that, you know what, this battery that Satan gives us is a dud, and so we kind of need to be here every week. That's cool. There's others of us who go, you know what, I'm still kind of convinced I can make my battery go so I can just show up every you know, four or six weeks. And then there's others of us who go, you know what, my battery is still in really good shape, so I can come at Christmas and Easter and I'm just fine. <laughs> How do we fight this greatest source of resistance? Ditch the battery. And understand that what worship's about is not charging our battery. Worship's about this. But it's not about plugging in. Worship's about recognizing that the plug exists in the first place. That's the other problem, because again, this, is, this won't work, because a lot of us go, okay, I'm here on Sunday, or I'm here at my Bible study, and I'll plug in. Ooh, good, I got powered up. I'll unplug. No, no, worship's realizing that you are plugged in all the time. And if you're not, you're dead. Worship is about realizing that this is what you carry with you all the time. That you're not coming in with your battery saying, charge me. But you're coming in and saying, man, I'm plugged in. And I want to be with everybody else as they're plugged in. Are you plugged in? Or are you living on battery power? We come to the end of our time in the wilderness. Jesus models to us when he says, worship your God alone. He doesn't say, worship God and other things. He says, worship your God alone, which basically means, he says, stay plugged in. We have confronted in the wilderness the three greatest sources of resistance. The greatest one we confronted today is power. And power brings temptation. Power corrupts. As we like to say, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what we see in Christ, why we look to him, why we follow him, is that Christ introduces something new, the power of absolute love, which conquers everything. We worship a God, talk about the power of absolute love, who was tempted in every way we are, but was without sin. We are part of a God who models for us. He emptied himself, we're told. He took away, he submitted all of his control so that he could be filled with the authority and power of the Father. And that's not just something he does, it's something he's teaching us to do. He lived by more than bread alone. We live more than by our appetites alone. He didn't just 
live by what other people said about him. He didn't jump off of buildings in order to impress other people. He lived off of what his father said about him and we live the same way. He didn't bow down before other gods in order to get greater things to happen. He served one God and one God only because that's the only place where he could experience the power of absolute love. You know, it's interesting and in a few weeks we're going to celebrate it. Easter, Holy Week. In Luke's gospel, not in Matthew, at the end of these temptations, Luke says, and the devil left him until an opportune time. And I've told you before that these temptations in the wilderness get repeated again and again in the gospels throughout his ministry. But probably in the most profound moment when the devil shows up again and you've got to read between the lines to see it is when Jesus is hanging on that cross, when Jesus is displaying the power of love. And Satan speaks through the sneers of the crowd who basically say, you want power now? How's that power of love working out for you? You want power now? You saved others. How about saving yourself? If you're the son of God, how about showing us power now? And we know and we'll celebrate in that moment that Jesus doesn't come down off the cross. He doesn't jump. He didn't jump from the temple. He doesn't jump from the cross. But what we know, what we celebrate is that he jumped in a different way. He jumped jumped not into the power of the world, but in that moment when he doesn't come down, when he's taunted to demonstrate power, he demonstrates, he expresses the power of love when he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He jumps. He makes the ultimate leap of faith into the valley of the shadow of death and he trusts as he's on the cross in the power of love, of absolute love of God, when he trusts that his, fa his father will not abandon him and with his last dying breath, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands, not the world. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And what we celebrate on Easter is that three days later when he comes out of the cave, he hasn't just passed now through the wilderness of temptation. He's passed through the wilderness of death. And that's the moment, beloved. Look forward to it. Celebrate it when we say that's power. That's power. That's the power of love. That's the power of Love, that's the power that can change our lives. That's the power that can change the world. And that's a power we can't control. It's simply a power we can bow down to and say, yes, Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.